This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for November 9th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today, we've got a special guest as well, Dr. Janet Woodcock, one of the leaders in this country in thinking about how to ensure that drugs are safe. She spent most of her career at the FDA, much of it as Director of the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, although she's also filled other roles, including Deputy Commissioner and Chief Medical Officer. And she recently joined Operation Warp Speed to lead the rapid search for new therapeutics against COVID-19. Throughout her career, Janet's been an innovator, helping to think about issues around accelerated approvals, individualized therapies, how to interpret non-traditional trial results. And at the Journal, Janet's been a member of the editorial board and one of our trusted advisors. Thank you for joining us today. Janet, one of the big regulatory issues during the COVID-19 outbreak has been around how rapidly new agents can reach patients. There's been a lot of discussion about emergency use authorizations. So before we get into the logic behind them, can you help our listeners understand what an EUA is and when the FDA can consider granting one? Sure. And thanks for inviting me to participate today. An EUA is a special authorization that can only occur when a public health emergency has been declared. And it allows a company to basically sell its product and also have sort of limited marketing and advertising during the emergency only. And the EUA standard for how much you need to know about the agent is much different than what you would have for a drug approval. So basically, depending on how extreme the situation is, the drug or other product for an EUA would just need to be sort of reasonably likely to have a benefit. It doesn't have the same rigorous standards that a drug approval would have. And that's because if our hands are empty and we really have nothing, then it's reasonable to try certain agents if they show promise. So then another question of definition, what for the FDA is an accelerated approval and how does that differ from an EUA? An accelerated approval is actually a complete approval by the FDA and the drug has the same marketing status as any other drug. The accelerated part is that the approval is based on a surrogate endpoint rather than a full clinical endpoint and that surrogate isn't completely validated. In other words, shown to correlate completely with clinical outcomes. So early in HIV, they use CD4 count, if you remember a long time ago, and then viral load before it was felt to be a valid surrogate. And similarly in cancer, other endpoints short of mortality are often used to grant accelerated approval. For example, they have complete responses to a tumor where they appear to have vanished during treatment. They may recur, it may not prolong survival, but often it's felt good enough in instances where there aren't other available therapies. And that's the other important thing about accelerated approval. I mean, Janet, HIV is a terrific example as we watch that unfold over the last few decades. And the CD4 versus viral load reminds me a little bit of some of the challenges we're facing with COVID, with the direct viral effect versus the host immune effect. It's not the same model at all with HIV, but it does speak to the issue of 
those surrogates that you're talking about where we directly attack the virus versus we're looking at host dysregulation, so to speak, the immunopathogenesis. How do you think about the EUA challenge for the direct viral approaches versus the host inflammatory dysregulation challenge? Well, I think most people feel we don't know a lot about the course of the disease yet, but there appears to be an early phase of typical viral proliferation and replication. And at some point, host immune responses start to clear the virus. In many people, that appears to be highly effective and they get better. In other folks, there's an, another rising phase of hyperinflammation that may be actually causing a lot of the late morbidity and mortality. And so clearly, we've had results from randomized controlled trials like recovery, where we see that dexamethasone is useful in that later stage. But we had hints that in that transition phase, dexamethasone actually may have been harmful. And certainly, we're very concerned because we know many practitioners are prescribing corticosteroids to outpatients soon after their diagnosis which would clearly be suboptimal therapy, right? So we don't know when that inflection point is. I think most people feel that direct antiviral, if they aren't toxic, could be used during much of the course of the infection, but we're always dealing with that toxicity problem. And the monoclonal antibodies or the immunoglobulins late could be adding fuel to the fire. So even though they have a direct antiviral effect, potentially neutralizing the virus, it may be at some point that that's suboptimal. And we have hints of that now with two trials where we have seen either no effect in inpatients or we have seen potential harm in late stage inpatients. So I think, again, very similar to HIV, we need better biomarkers to figure out what's going on during the course of this disease to figure out appropriate treatment. One of the criticisms, Janet, of the EUA process has been, and it really is reflected in what you just said, has been that it can be difficult to continue to do the kinds of research you need to do in order to tell something like what you just described, the late complications of a therapy. How do you think these should be used in the context of ongoing research? Well, in general, I think we always have to have randomized trials. And I would have preferred, I think what they did in the UK was really admirable. I think the adage, randomize the first patient, nothing could have been more germane here. And had we done those sorts of things, we'd be in a better situation of understanding therapeutics right now. So to your question, this is a classic dilemma, right, for people with very serious illnesses which is how much certainty do you want to have versus the people have a mortal illness and people are dying and how much preliminary evidence is enough evidence? And how do you keep that from generating the knowledge that you actually need to be certain about a therapeutic effect? And that trade-off is just woven through drug regulation. It's really a problem. But I would like to talk about the state of clinical trials for this pandemic and how it has really, in my mind, revealed the problems of the ecosystem that we have today. Well, perhaps you could expand on that. I guess one of the concerns that people have pointed out is that 
there are many trials that are going on started by different investigators, which each individually are too small to give answers, for example, and a lack of coordination among them. What do you think the ecosystem should look like? Well, we have constructed a deep data lake and looked at worldwide trials and also in the U.S. In the U.S. for therapeutics, there are over 700 trials going on, and we judge based on whether or not they're randomized and how much statistical power they have. About 5% of them will yield actionable data. And in Operation Warp Speed and setting up trials, we've had competition with many of these other smaller trials. And say you take convalescent plasma, we don't have a single trial, even though that's been available for quite a long time, we don't have a single trial that is large enough to yield answers right now, randomized trials. And we're supporting continued conduct of those randomized trials. So I think there's a really big problem because the effort has been uncoordinated. These trials are underpowered, even amongst those 5%. Many of them will never enroll enough patients because that's the other thing we're seeing is that people aren't enrolled. And since many of these patients are in the community, they don't have an opportunity to participate in trials. And so we have tens of thousands of people who are ill, and most of them cannot be entered into trials where we can learn knowledge quickly. This is really a challenge, and I think we need as a community to come together after this and do some lessons learned and figure out how we could respond better. Janet, I think you raised a palpable challenge with convalescent plasma, where, as you said earlier, we need to have some kind of treatment for our patients because they're so sick and we have little directed therapy to disease pathogenesis. By establishing an EUA, it becomes incredibly difficult to then randomize. And how do you deal with that paradox or that conflict? And how should the community deal with it to conduct the trials as you suggest we should? I would have suggested that the original expanded access program that had 40,000 people or whatever in it should have started out as a randomized program. That's what I mean by randomize the first patient. By the time they got 40,000 people enrolled, they had a large amount of people who were convinced the therapy was effective. The FDA did this analysis by Titer and showed in a subgroup there was a survival advantage and you compared people who got high titer to people who basically got no neutralizing antibodies. And then, you know, the game was, it was very difficult at this point. But if that had been set up as a randomized trial, we could have similar to recovery because we know a lot about plasma. And so it isn't a new molecular entity that we're really you know, concerned about toxicity and we have to use a phase one unit to look at it. That could have been set up in a way that rapidly yielded information. And in fact, recovery is doing convalescent plasma in their trial right now in the UK. So it does sound like a lesson learned is how do we pre-position infrastructure and scientific approach so that for the next rapidly spreading infection, likely a respiratory virus, we have approaches that can generate higher quality data. I agree. And for a long time, I've been a proponent of master protocols and platform trials. I think we need to have things like that set up and ready to go. They can certainly yield really valuable information about standard of care during periods where we're not having pandemics and so forth going on. 
but um, I think we need a more comprehensive approach so that we're ready when something like this happens. And we also need some agreement amongst investigators and scientific researchers in the medical community that this is how we're going to approach it. This is how we're going to do it. We're going to do the studies. We're going to do them fast. So how would you structure that change to the ecosystem? Is this government work? Is this pharmaceutical company work? Is this academic medical center work? Well, I think the government has to lead because they're the source of much of the funding. I recognize the pharmaceutical industry does a lot of trials and probably the majority of funded trials are pharmaceutical, but they have different agenda, right? And objectives due to their need to develop products. That's what they're in existence for. So I do think the government would have to lead on this. And I also do think that one of the major elements is we have to get out of the academic medical centers. And I've said this many times before, Steve, and you've heard me say this, I think. Um, and we have to set up support for the community to participate so that they can contribute patients without having to send them away. They can participate in the research enterprise. And I think this is all doable. I think one of the good things about this you know, where there's a silver lining here for the ecosystem, the acceptance of platform trials and master protocols has really blossomed during this time. They have actually yielded much of the actionable information that we have about treating COVID-19 disease so far. Janet, I appreciate the fact that you're trying to drive Lindsay out of his job at an academic medical center as an investigator, but I wonder beyond the U.S. ecosystem, many of these infections are first presenting in other countries. Um, what is your sense of international cooperation when it comes to the sorts of platform technologies you're talking about? Well, I've been talking through ECMR. We have calls that have regulators from 40 or 50 countries on them. And I've presented the data on the worldwide trials and the lack of actionable trials. And I think everyone is on the same page about this. And there will be an opportunity for at least the regulatory community worldwide to come together and hopefully the medical ecosystem worldwide to come together and say, we can do better. We can have a more coordinated and cohesive response. So wherever the next virus originates and wherever it starts to proliferate, we can jump in as a global enterprise and figure out how to treat it as fast as possible. I do appreciate Eric trying to run me out of a job, but as an academic investigator, heavily government funded, I actually completely agree with how you think about this, Janet. However, I look at the three EUAs in the last 10 months, remdesivir, hydroxychloroquine, and convalescent plasma. The one that was best organized in study conduct is one that had a pharmaceutical interest driving it. The convalescent plasma hydroxychloroquine being readily available, many groups emerged driving an agenda to understand if it works in a much more small operation as opposed to very large coordinated. So if there are new entities, does a pharmaceutical company have to drive it for this process to work? Well, first, let me say to Eric, I'm not trying to drive Lindsay out of a job. In fact, as part of uh, Operation Warp Speed, you know, we're working with the infectious disease community around the country and the world to get platform trials stood up. And the investigators and their expertise is critical. It's simply that they have seven other jobs, right? And 
the difference with a pharmaceutical trial is that it has that infrastructure and organization has lots of people to get the work done and it also they have reached through CROs to a lot of community sites. I want to quote Martin Landry if I may okay and I have his permission now I've called this Landry's rule and Landry's rule is that the number of patients enrolled is inversely proportional to the number of professors. And there's nothing really wrong with that, okay, because in the communities, you know, hospitals and so forth, say in recovery, there aren't other competing factors there. And if you can do a pragmatic trial, there are lots of patients, right, and they can get randomized. But what we've seen is that the academic investigators are underfunded, they're under-resourced, they don't have the infrastructure support that a pharmaceutical trial would have say their data systems are not real time, they're very slow, you know, and it goes on and on and on. And so I believe if we built really good platforms that the pharmaceutical industry would participate and that would allow funding to flow in. I think the problem right now is academic trials are felt to be slow and clunky and not of registration quality as far as data collected and so forth. And so then they don't want to be a part of that. But we need to merge these enterprises together. In other words, that's my belief, is that I would prefer as a drug regulator when I'm doing that, when I'm working at the FDA, which I'm not now, right, I would prefer to see these trials done by a third party, run by academic investigators, because I think that gives the greatest confidence of everyone. However, they can't be little, small, slow trials, right? We have to get them done. And is that some of what you've helped guide through Operation Warp Speed, leveraging some of the NIH networks to do some of both the therapeutic trials as well as the vaccine trials? Right. So for therapeutics for Operation Warp Speed, so I'm not speaking for the FDA right now. I'm you know, speaking as working at Operation Warp Speed. We are leveraging the academic networks, but we're trying to bring in a tremendous amount of infrastructure support as much as we can to get that done. And we've had the same problems. We've had slow site activation. We've had slow enrollment and so forth. And part of that is they're under-resourced to get these things done rapidly. So looking beyond the clinical trial ecosystem, what else has this pandemic taught us about getting treatments from the lab to patients? Are there things that we've learned that would change the way we deal with these outbreaks? You know, I'm not sure. Probably there are people who will say yes. But I would say in my experience, although we hear a lot about how much we need treatments, we also hear a lot of voices saying we want assurance of safety, right? We want assurance that the drugs work, <laughs> right? And so um, sure, some of the things that Operation Warp Speed have been doing that you wouldn't do ordinarily is to support advanced manufacturing. So typically pharmaceutical companies will not go to commercial scale manufacturing until they're sure they have a winner because it's so expensive, right? And so Operation Warp Speed has been funding advanced manufacturing and also advanced purchase so that the companies are not going to sort of go out of business if they go through development and their drug isn't effective or has a safety problem. So that part of the equation can be collapsed somewhat, but we still have to do safety testing. I feel like 
in drug development in general, dose finding is usually neglected. And I think what we'll find in this pandemic is, because I wonder about the monoclonals, if maybe we shouldn't have gone into inpatients with a lot lower dose, that you know, you often regret that in the end. So I'm not sure that that part can be compressed more like the safety evaluation, preclinical evaluation and so forth. Manufacturing can be accelerated. And if we had a real machine to crank out evidence in the clinic, we could really accelerate clinical evaluation, which usually takes a very long time. It's interesting that in cancer, there are pre-existing networks to test almost anything, uh, large networks. And it's there is that machine in infectious disease. In HIV, we have that, but in infectious disease more broadly, not so much. So it's a, it's a very interesting idea. Right. Well, we have utilized the existing HIV networks, okay, and they've repurposed themselves because they're infectious disease docs and are doing this. But again, they don't have infrastructure support and they don't have the community connections to do the kind of scale that we need here to really evaluate things as quickly as possible. Janet, let me change tracks and ask something a little more personal for you. You've been a regulator for many years at FDA, and now you have a new role at Operation Warp Speed, where you're not a regulator, but in fact, you're encouraging the development of new therapies. How is that the same, and how does it differ from what you've done before? So I feel like I bring a lot to the table in development because I really understand what needs to get done to actually have a valid therapeutic, right? And what's different is I don't have to worry uh, I'm totally recused from any decision that the FDA would make about any therapy for COVID-19, right? Because I'm on the other side now and everybody understands that. I don't have to worry about all the details. The regulators have to worry about making sure that every single thing is right. Every single thing about manufacturing, all the toxicity testing, the details of all of that. I can kind of look at the big picture, but I also appreciate from this side, the pressure that companies are under, right, to get things done and get things out there and how there's constant pressure. I think here, a lot of people don't understand and they think we should just have these therapies out there. They should just have been out there months ago, right, before they were clinically evaluated at all. And, and you can see that tension. And probably I think people in the pharmaceutical industry are under that kind of pressure all the time as well. So that's different. So Janet, from your position with Operation Warp Speed, can you tell us what we should be expecting in terms of new therapies for COVID-19? Well, it is no secret that Eli Lilly and Regeneron have both filed for EUAs and I think it's possible we definitely will see that for outpatient therapies. Now, that may be a very difficult challenge for the healthcare system to give IV infusions to infected individuals who are sick, right? Um, but the hope is that providing antibodies early, antiviral, basically an antiviral intervention early can prevent the progression of illness and people are destined to go to the hospital and get really sick. So I think we may see something in that area. Of course, the big hope here is the vaccines in their trials and their trials are ongoing and we can hope that we will get good news very soon about the vaccines, but it will take quite a while to immunize the entire willing population, right? And um, 
So that's going to be quite some time, I think, before we really get control of the epidemic in the United States from vaccination. So the monoclonal antibodies also are being tested in prophylaxis and post-exposure prophylaxis. And I think depending on how effective the vaccines are, particularly in immunocompromised or elderly people, that may be a tool that remains a good part of the armamentarium. Some of these antibodies have been engineered to have extremely long half-lives. And so they could be administered to people who don't respond well or can't take a vaccine and could provide protection. So I think that's also good news. Now, as far as inpatients and once people have progressed to the inflammatory phase of the disease, I think we have a long way to go. Operation Warp Speed is supporting trials by heart, lung, and blood of various anticoagulation regimens, both in pre-hospitalized patients as well as inpatients. So dealing with the thrombotic problems associated with the disease. But I think we still don't have a really good handle, as we discussed earlier, on this transition to an immunologic problem or inflammatory problem, how to deal with the virus, and so forth. I also believe, I think it'll take somewhat longer, but we will see antivirals that hopefully we get some oral antivirals that can be used in outpatients but also for people who actually acquire the infection that could be effective. I think, Janet, you raise the important point that we have to be careful about one size fits all. We'll get an answer like a vaccine, which I'm a big believer in and spending a lot of time working on, but I'm not convinced that any one potential solution is likely to be a universal solution. And as you point out, there may be different groups for different reasons be they health or community issues as to their acceptance of a vaccine or their response to a vaccine. And that we need to continue to be aware that we may need additional solutions to fit the different communities who may get ill. Right. And so in Operation Warp Speed, we focused first on the direct antivirals, both small molecules and then the monoclonals, hyperimmune globulin, and so forth. Okay. But then we also were looking at managing the complications related to disease, which would be your immunomodulator, anticoagulants, perhaps other type of drugs. And I think all of those modalities will unfortunately probably, as you said, continue to be needed unless we have vaccines that, you know, we have incredible effectiveness of our vaccines, which we can hope that would be the case. We'll just have to see. So we're continuing to press on with these various trials to see if we can't have a good arsenal of therapeutics for people who actually get infected and actually have some prophylaxis modalities for people who don't respond to the vaccines well. And I hope that as this moves forward and we do break the back of transmission and get ahead of COVID, that we'll learn lessons for each of these different arenas because they all don't have the same metronomes. There are different pressure points to developing antivirals, to developing therapies against the complications of downstream problems that our patients get, as well as vaccines and other prophylactics. And we may learn different lessons for these different problems. I agree, and I think it's very interesting. Uh, I think there's a lot of science to be done here 
because it appears that there are genetic variants in the immune system, the innate immune system response, for example, and potentially even your humoral response that may predispose you to having different trajectories. Some people appear to acquire the virus and actually go downhill very rapidly. And many other people are sitting around for a week or two with the virus replicating, replicating, not clearing it. Then they go into the hospital. So what's that about? And do they need different kind of interventions? And we don't know right now. So I think there is going to continue to be a lot to learn. And setting up the larger platform trials with really good scientists and so forth, I think will help us continue to answer the question. Thanks, as usual, Eric and Lindsay. And particular thanks to you, Janet, for joining us today.